like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal, come hear the animals, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today is Trish McMillan, who has a long and varied resume involving training and otherwise helping animals shape or reshape their behavior. She works with cats, dogs, and horses, holding a master's degree in animal behavior from the University of Exeter in England. McMillan is also a certified professional dog trainer, a certified dog behavior consultant, and associate certified cat behavior consultant. She spent seven years working for the ASPCA, some of that time as director of the Animal Behavior Department in the ASPCA's New York City shelter. Some of the topics we may discuss this morning include dog training as well as some common behavioral challenges and how to address them, cat behavior and training, the complex and controversial subject of behavioral euthanasia, the impact of the pandemic now and later, both at homes and in shelters, and places to go for help with some of these issues. We'll get into that discussion with Trish McMillan in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Before I address the other guests on today's show, I think it's important to highlight that one week from today, January 27th, we'll be raising money for WMNF on Talking Animals. I recently learned that I've assigned a fundraising goal of $3,000 for that morning. That's $3,000 that we need to raise in one hour here on Talking Animals. So, realistically, the only chance of reaching that goal is to receive some pledges before next week's fund drive. So, so I hope uh, I can ask you to make a donation early. What, what about now? How about right this moment? It's fast and easy to do. Visit TalkingAnimals.net and you'll find simple instructions for pledging and info on some exclusive thank you gifts. Ones you can only get for pledging on behalf of Talking Animals by way of supporting WMNF. Those exclusive thank you gifts include a week's stay in a newly remodeled Kauai condo, a great setup at a discounted price. Pledge for it now, so when COVID travel restrictions are lifted, you could look forward to an idyllic week or more in paradise. Books by recent guests Carl Safina and Jeffrey Mason, signed by the authors. CDs featuring all dog songs by a slew of great Nashville singer-songwriters, amazing pet hair-removing gizmos, and more. To help me get a head start on my fundraising goal, you can go online to WMNF.org and donate via our tip jar. Just please be sure to indicate your donation is intended for Talking Animals. If you'd like to make arrangements to pledge for a specific Talking Animals gift, please email me at duncan at WMNF.org. Meanwhile, later in this show, I'll speak with Jennifer Kennedy, who has led or consulted on campaigns to pass anti-tethering legislation, usually meaning laws that, when passed, prevent folks from leaving their dogs chained or otherwise tied up outside. Florida now has anti-tethering bills pending in both the Senate and the House, and we'll discuss this with Jennifer later in the program. Right now, though, let's talk animal behavior, the good, the bad, the ugly, with Trish McMillan, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Trish McMillan on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Trish. 
Good morning. Thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, thanks for uh, joining us on Talking Animals today. And we have uh, all kinds of things to, to talk about, and uh, we'll just do what we can to get them all in. But given the notable combination of extensive academic training and extensive experience, I'm guessing the Trish McMillan saga of loving animals began pretty early. What sort of roles did animals play in your life when you were a kid? Oh, I was always the animal kid in my household. I think my, one of my first words was dog. So I've, uh, I was always the one who took care of the animals that we had and collected more than we really needed. And I started off actually as a horse person. So um, I, I trained and showed horses from a young childhood into my early 20s and then I got too poor to have horses and thought well I'll get a dog we always had dogs growing up I always trained the dogs in the household yeah and um, that led me down the journey of dog behavior and training turns out a lot of it translates from one species to the other yeah and it sounds like just from your brief description so far that early on the, the notion was kind of always how might I train them or how might I exact a certain kind of behavior whether it was from the horses you were showing as a young younger person or or coming back around to dogs later. Yeah, yeah. I've always been fascinated with how we can change their behavior, how we can, even as a, as a young child, our family dog knew every trick in the book. I, I'd come home and use leftover pancakes from after church and uh, teach the dog how to speak and roll over and shake a paw and spin in a circle. And my little sisters always won the dog tricks contest at the fall fairs. With wow. The dogs that I'd trained. So the secret is the pancakes, apparently, amongst other things. Yeah. Yeah, I always lean towards using cookies in love with my animals, even though that was not in vogue in the 70s when I got my first animals. Um, I always had a carrot in my back pocket when I was riding the horses. I still really, really think positive reinforcement is the way to go. The bond you get with animals when you trade them with cookies and love is so much better. Sure. Well, so it sounds like, as we've established here, there was an early affection for animals and a connection with animals, and whether it was horses or dogs. So at what point did you start thinking, hey, um, I'd actually like to, to work with animals where I could kind of keep going with this as, as a job. Maybe that's what I'd like to do. When did that kind of notion into your... Uh... Yeah, people often ask, like, how do you become a dog trainer? How do you become a behaviorist? And nobody really wants to follow my path because it was a weird and convoluted one. Um, okay. First, Give us the nickel tour, the, the short version, I guess, then, if it's that convoluted. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, first you go to art school and you get a degree in drawing and painting. Okay. And then you try not to starve for a few years. And then you buy a dog from a breeder and then you find out there are dogs dying in shelters and feel guilty and start working with shelter dogs. And then you start apprenticing as a trainer and get some weird dogs from the shelter. And then it becomes an absolute obsession. I must know everything there is to know mm. about training and behavior. Well, yeah, I see what you mean, because the, uh, the art school part doesn't necessarily seem to fit in with most of the rest of it. But uh, but sometimes you got to make kind of a move to the left to, to well, ultimately. You know what I've noticed with my trainer friends is a lot of us started out in creative fields. Mm. It's theater or music and that creativity really helps when you get into training just being able to think outside of the box and come up with interesting and unique solutions. It's never a bad thing to have a creative mind. Yeah. So along those lines, once you sort of got more into the professional side, you you learned, oh, geez, I shouldn't have bought that dog. There's all these dogs in shelters. And then you kind of got into dogs just generally and then training with dogs. Did you start at that point to feel like, hey, this is really where I belong. This, this feels right to me. Well, I always 
had the the two passions of art and science. Mm. Before I went to art school, I had taken all of the science courses so that I could become a veterinarian because I didn't know behavior was a thing back then. Yeah. Have the internet. And if you liked animals, you had to become a vet. And I was just not good at math. That was my Uh, downfall. Yeah. So I was was like, well, I'm good at art also. I guess I'll go to school for that. Wow. Okay. Well, that's great because, again, a lot of folks uh, early on don't necessarily have the art and science background or or they they might have one or the other. But usually both are, for some people at least, a little bit uh, in in conflict. So that's great that those were sort of running themes for you. Yeah, I'm probably one of the few people out there with a Bachelor of Fine Arts, Master of Science. Uh, combo, and I did have to upgrade the art degree with a lot of science courses at the university level before I could get into grad school. But uh, no regrets. I uh, well, I, I'm also a Canadian working in the United States. So oh wow! I was here on strange visas, trying to not get thrown out of the country. I realized if I had a master's degree, I could work wherever in the world I wanted to. And I was taking undergrad courses at Berkeley, and I met Stephen Lee, who was there on sabbatical, and he was one of the big names in animal cognition at the time. And I went out for lunch, bought him some lunch, and said, "Um, how do I get into your program in England? And he said, we'd love to have somebody with a training background come and help us with our experiments. Wow. Sort of smooth the way (laughs) for me to get in there. That's great. And just as a quick side note, where in Canada are you from originally? I was born in Toronto, but I have lived all over. Mm-hmm. And I spent the most time on the West Coast. I really love Vancouver, Vancouver Island. Gotcha. Cool. Well, let me let folks know this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Trish McMillan, a highly educated, as we're hearing, an experienced animal behaviorist who works with dogs, cats, and horses, and uh, will likely discuss behavioral issues in dogs and cats and how to address them, as well as the complex and controversial topic of behavioral euthanasia. If you'd like to ask Trish a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813 813- Four three three zero eight eight five. So let's talk just at least a little bit about dog training and some, especially maybe some uh, common behavioral challenges that are often faced with dogs. What would you say the two or three most common behavioral issues that you've seen or worked with in dogs over the years? Well, the most common thing that I work with these days is leash reactivity, which is dogs who lunge and bark at usually other dogs, but mm-hmm. sometimes also humans when you're walking them on leash. And I, I think leashes really make dogs, it, it messes with their body language. Like if you want, if you see dogs greeting one another in a dog park, they will come up to one another sort of nose to tail, they'll circle, they'll sniff. That's the polite way to shake hands in dog world is nose to tail. But if you're walking down a sidewalk, you're kind of forcing the dog into a confrontational body posture where we're approaching head-on, we're looking straight into one another's eyes, and a lot of dogs learn that if you, sometimes they're frustrated and they want to greet the other dog and they can't because they've got a leash on, sometimes they want the other dog to go away, but they can get into the habit of lunging and barking while on leash. This is super, super, super common. And how simple is this to rectify? Well, some dogs are easier than others, for sure. A lot of it depends on the motivation, whether they're just frustrated and they want to play or whether they truly want to hurt the other dog. Mm. But in general, the the quick and easy way to get past this, if you've got a minor case, is sometimes changing up the walking equipment helps. Sometimes if you've got a harness that attaches in the back, the dog can lunge and pull harder like a a husky can with a sled. Mm. 
So using a front attached harness or using a head halter can help you sort of turn the front of the dog back towards you and prevent some of the lunging. And the other secret weapon that I give my clients is take a stick of string cheese with you on the walk. (laughs) And if every time a dog passes on the other side of the street, you pull out that stick of string cheese and you let the dog eat from it the whole way past, pretty soon when they see another dog, they're going to look over at you and go, hey, mom. Where's my cheese? <laughs> so we're looking at taking the emotion out of it, whether it's frustration or whether it's a desire to make the other dog go away. Yeah. Um, Counter conditioning it. We're teaching them that when you see another dog, I get very generous with the string cheese. Right. Well, and again, it already seems like we've got now a running theme of co- little cookies or biscuits or the carrot for the horse or whatever from very early on in your experience. So this seems to be a definite uh, through line. So, but- yeah, well, you can you have to feed your dog twice a day and you can feed them in training and have a better dog after the meal, or you can just put the food down and have the same dog after the meal. And it never made sense to me to just hand out food for free when you could use it to change the behavior you want to change. Sure. And here's what may be a rhetorical question, but should every single dog have some kind of training? Well, I think it's a shame if you don't. Like Mm. dogs have these wonderful brains and they are thinking all the time. Um, One of my favorite um, Steve White quotes is, whenever you are with your dog, one of you is training the other. And it's better to be the trainer than the trainee. (laughs) I see. Okay. So uh, you might as well get ahead of that uh, equation if you can, sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Might as well use the calories to get the behavior you want. And certainly my 14-year-old dog gets a lot less training than my 2-year-old dog because she's already perfect. (laughs) Right. But I I still do a little bit with her, you know, when we're out on a walk on the trail, I will call her to me with hand signals now because she's deaf. And she still gets a piece of string cheese if she comes to me. That's one of the greatest gifts is to let a dog free in the forest and have them actually come back to you when you ask them to. Yeah, and and perhaps one of the second greatest gifts is the piece of string cheese, but uh, yeah, win-win. Right. So, what age uh, then? Typically, since I think we've established that that your recommendation is that all dogs have at least some training. What what age ideally would that start for most dogs? Well, they're always learning, whether you're training them or not. Mm -hmm. So, I prefer to start as young as possible. I the youngest dog I have trained, well, I had a litter of puppies, but I started training as soon as they were eating solid food. I, I raised a litter of puppies years ago for the shelter. And as soon as they can eat food, you can start teaching them to sit. You can start teaching them to lie down. You can, they're, they're really, as soon as their eyes are open, not all of us get our puppies that young. So yeah. If you're lucky, you'll get them from a breeder who does start the training young with a with uh, something like puppy culture, there are various puppy programs out there for uh, getting those neurons wired really early on. Um, but certainly as soon as you get the puppy, it, it's really helpful to start teaching them that what you say has meaning. And if they do as you ask, good things will likely happen. And I guess conversely, I'm curious, is there ever a scenario where a given dog can undergo too much training? Well, as a trainer, I don't think so. Yeah, okay. No, I just I just didn't know if there, if there was a yeah, situation where they might get sort of overwhelmed or exhausted or whatever, and, and so that it might yeah. might work against the, 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 the virtues otherwise. Yeah, I never beg my dogs to train, whether they're working for food or toys. If I find I'm having to nag them and, um, you know, multiple smaller sessions always work better than hour-long bouts of training. But as far as the number of things you can teach a dog, I think keep them 
learning through their whole lives and they'll have fewer cognitive problems when they get older. Okay. Well, let's uh, just in the interest of uh, covering uh, as much ground as we can and, and in a moment or two getting into a, a topic that we may want to spend a little more time on proportionately. So in the meantime, though, you don't hear nearly as much about cat training, but a number of people, including you, do train cats uh, tell me about cat training. How does it differ fundamentally from dog training, and what problems or issues with cats are most frequently addressed by training? Yeah, well, the most common issue I get is litter box training issues, and honestly, a lot of cat behavior consultant is about manipulating the environment to work for you and the cat, but um, cats are highly, highly trainable creatures. They are every bit as smart as a dog, but you can't just put a choke chain on and strangle them until they sit. Dogs will put up with that stuff, which is why we used to do things like, like that to them. But a cat's just going to scratch you and, and hate you. So yeah. Going to the positive reinforcement paradigm again, if you use food, you can teach cats anything. You, I, I really like using clicker training for cats. You don't actually need a physical clicker. You can use a verbal event marker or you can use a tongue click hmm. and and that marks the behavior you want so if you wanted to teach your cat to sit for example you could just hold a little tidbit above their nose i like using baby food on a spoon because the trouble with cats and using food for training is if you give a cat a hard treat for sitting they will take that treat into the corner they will chew it 20 times and they'll come back to you and they'll forget what they were working on <laughs> it's just a long time since they got the treat but if you give them a little lick of something liquid off a spoon you can hold the spoon over their head as soon as the cat's neck gets tired and their butt hits the ground you mark that with your clicker or with your tongue click and then you give them a little lick of food from the spoon and then you take a step away and wait for them to sit again and by marking and rewarding the behavior you can then start naming it so i do have a cat who will sit when i ask her to sit and people's jaws drop when they see that i'm sure <laughs> that's just a coincidence so yeah watch me do it again <laughs> wow no that's really great so um i think i'm not sure we had a little bit of a phone issue here but i'm going to see if we uh, might have a caller here to get involved in the conversation hi you're on talking animals with trish mcmillan okay yeah, so that was not what it looked to be. Sorry about that. So this uh, sounds like a clicker training or variation with the mouth click or whatever. That's the the, the real effective way to get great results uh, fairly fairly quickly with, uh, with yeah, the cats. You can, and you can use training to work with behavior problems. So if you've got a cat who likes to attack your ankles when you walk by the couch, you can teach your cat instead to station on their cat tree or station on a cat bed up on the furniture and reward them for that. Give them a cue, go to your bed, and uh, reward them for hopping on the, on the station. And you can't both hide under the couch and attack ankles and be up on top of the couch on your dog bed. So this is how you use actual training with cats to work with behavior problems. And you mentioned early on on the cat uh, training side that a lot of times that's to deal with litter box issues. Yeah, yeah. That, one in 10 cats will develop litter box issues over their lifetime. And really often if it, if it just happened with an adult cat who has never had litter box issues before, the first thing you do is go to your vet because no amount of behavior modification can fix a medical problem. And if the cat has a urinary tract infection and when they have peed in the litter box, it was painful for them, they may assume that the litter box bit them and start avoiding it. A lot of the litter box problems I see, though, are just poor setup. And just knowing a little bit about how cats work can be so helpful in fixing litter box problems. For example, you should not have the litter box right beside the cat's food and water. Nobody wants to eat in their bathroom or pee in their kitchen. Yeah. Um, 
the other thing is a lot when I when I first got my cat, my current cat, I went out to get a litter box and all of the litter boxes that were available were kind of kitten size and she's not a tiny cat. And she did come to me with it said on her form at the shelter that she had litter box problems. That's why she was thrown outside and then given up. And the litter boxes that were available were tiny. A lot of the a lot of them have these hoods over top of them, which means people leave the litter unscooped for weeks on end and it turns into kind of an outhouse in there. The ammonia smell can get really bad. So scooping frequently, having an open top litter box, um, having a big enough litter box for the cat to posture properly in, in order to eliminate um some of the strange things I've seen people try to get cats to pee in these um, crystals that water washes over. I've had a couple of litter box issues as a result of people trying to teach their cats to pee in the toilet. The cat figures out that peeing on the couch is actually a lot more comfortable than perching on a human toilet. Yeah. So um, a lot of it is just setting it up so that cats um, so you've, you've got a toilet that the cat likes. Yeah. You know, as you're talking here, I'm, I'm wondering, as you might imagine, on a show like this, we've talked a lot, a lot, a lot over many, many years about declaw, about the declaw procedure and the serious minuses that that presents for, for cats, which often involves litter box issues. I'm just wondering, as you're talking about some of this stuff, have there been instances where a cat that was declawed and developed, as they often do in the wake of that, litter box issues that you were able to sort of train to get back on track with the litter box, even though they were declawed? Yeah, when a cat has had a painful experience in a litter box, whether it's trying to scrape the litter with kind of mutilated front paws or if it, if they've had a painful poop or pee experience in the box, sometimes you can change things up. Sometimes they think it's just that box that hurts them. So using a different litter, using a different type of box, putting it in a different location can be helpful. And with the severe cases, what we do sometimes is give the, do- give the cat a little less choice about the litter box so maybe can find them in one room, one small room where that's the only place you have to eliminate. Mm. Again, you're going to keep the food and water as far away from the litter box as you can, but first make the litter box as attractive as possible. Sometimes making the litter less deep is better for for cats who have um, painful paws, whether it's arthritis or declaw, and changing the type of litter. They might associate a certain scent with that painful experience they had. So maybe change it up. In general, cats prefer bumping, clay, unscented, fine grain litter. So if you're having litter box problems, change up the type of litter. And uh, sometimes what we do is we play litter box bingo with them. So we'll put three different styles of boxes in that room and three different litters and see if the cat prefers one type over another. And you just mark off on your bingo sheet what they do in each box. And pretty soon you'll have uh, you'll have done that preference test for we, ha- we, we have a winner at, at some point. Yeah, it sounds exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> this is Talking Animals of Duncan's Trust. My guest is Trish McMillan, animal behaviorist who works with dogs, cats, and horses, often to address behavioral issues, sometimes very serious ones. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So these discussions may lead us to um, the complex and 
certainly controversial subject of behavioral euthanasia, uh, but it also feels like an enormously important topic to address head on and, and not ignore, look away from. So I guess in some ways the term is kind of self-explanatory, but just so we start off with a clear understanding, can you sort of define behavioral euthanasia for us? Yeah, um, in some extreme cases, there are dogs and cats and horses who are suffering mentally enough that we choose to euthanize them. It's often an aggression issue where people and other animals are at risk, but it has also happened for anxiety. There's very often, I believe, a chemical, biochemical, physical reason behind it with uh horse that might be arthritis of the spine that's causing them to buck and become dangerous towards humans. Um, a friend of mine, Sue Alexander, is the founder of Losing Lulu. I run a support group for people who have euthanized their animals for behavior. And um, she had a client dog who they did a necropsy after his death and they found that he had a brain malformation that was probably causing migraine level headaches for much of this dog's life. And that's what was causing this sporadic range aggression that he was showing. And he did end up euthanized for his behavior. Wow, yeah. I imagine, and we'll get into this more, I guess, in a moment, but I imagine many animal owners faced with that kind of dire scenario of, let's say, their beloved dog repeatedly engaging in threatening or, or dangerous behavior would firmly believe that there must always be another option, more training, a different approach, something else that could be done. But part of the tragedy here, if I understand this properly, is that sometimes there isn't something else that can be done. So counterintuitive as it is for, for those of us who really, really love animals, it just turns out, I guess, that some animals ultimately can't be saved. Yeah. When I started off as a baby trainer, I was pretty sure I could fix everything. And I i mean, most things can be fixed with training and medication and uh, it's environmental changes. But what I ask people sometimes is if the best psychiatrist in the world worked with Jeffrey Dahmer in prison, would you feel comfortable with him being released and living next door to you? Or would you let him look after your teenage children when you've gone, mm. out, for the, gone out to the movies? Like, I, I think there are some mental issues that are just not solvable. I hope we'll be able to solve these at some point in the future. We're certainly a lot further ahead than we were 100 years ago with both humans and animals, but there, there really are some that are too far gone to be saved. And the tough thing is there's always going to be one more thing. People say, I can't do it until I've tried everything. Yeah. And what I found when I had actually one of the litter of puppies that I raised ended up being one of the most aggressive dogs I've ever lived with. And as a professional trainer, I did all the right things. I trained those puppies from the time their eyes opened with cookies and love. And we socialized and we went to puppy classes. And I got that dog out and had to meet lots of people and lots of dogs. And at three weeks of age, when I was doing just normal puppy handling, rolling him over, feeling his toes, he was growling at me. His eyes were barely open. So you can't tell me that's something that happened in his puppyhood that made him aggressive yeah. that dog from birth and he had a type of aggressive really explosive dangerous multiple bite coming up your arm and launching for your face kind of um, aggressive episodes that were quite sporadic and hard to predict therefore hard to train around yeah and at 18 months of age um we decided to euthanize him, and it was such a hard thing. It's something nobody talks about, so people think it never happens, and it becomes this this cycle. And I'm here to tell you, it's really often 
they're born this way. This is not something that is, you know, you, his his dinner was late once when he was five months old, and that's why he is aggressively attacking me most yeah. times a day over pretty much nothing. Right. No, it's uh, clearly much more fundamental and, and as stark as it was your, your sort of parallel with the uh, Jeffrey Dahmer thing, I guess, put it into a, a context that probably would make this a little more... Uh, yeah, and then the flip side of that is I, I have sitting beside me drinking loudly right now uh, Pitbull who was raised by a dog fighter. His owner is still in prison for the extreme cruelty he showed to Theodore and his um, friends and relatives on the chains. And Theodore is the happiest, friendliest dog I have ever met. He was not socialized during that critical socialization period before four months of age. He met only the dog fighter. He spent eight months in the shelter after he was rescued, meeting only shelter people. So he had not seen a cat. He had not seen a dog who wasn't a pit bull. He had not seen a child. And this dog, everybody he meets is his best friend. Every dog he meets is his best friend. This is not typical for fighting dogs. He would have been very bad at dog fighting. Yeah. But he's a he's a wonderful pet. So when people say, oh, it's all how you raise them. And they see Theodore and they're like, oh, well, clearly he's such a nice dog because such a nice lady raised him. I'm like, no, it was not me. This is just who he is. I, I chose him. Yeah. Well- it's awesome. Yeah, no, that's it's really notable because it it really sounds like in both the great version of the story with with Theodore and the not great at all version of the story that you told a moment ago, it's the dog or the animal's nature, even if it's a like an anomaly in either direction. And again, I mean, uh, to me, if you're a really incredibly educated and experienced uh, be animal behaviorist slash trainer and you have that experience with that dog that you described a moment ago um, it seems like you would then feel torn and miserable and sad but 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 confident that like this dog really is not going to be turned around and and is always going to be a, a potential threat yeah I mean Chinook was probably the best trained dog I've ever had because he had to be I mean I could I could raise my hand across a football field that he would drop into a down. That's a hand signal, not a threat. Um, but all of the training and all of the socialization could not bring him around. And we tried everything. We tried medication. We tried holistic methods. We tried supplements. We tried diet changes. And that, that's when I found that there is no such thing as trying everything. Like my boyfriend and I, at the time, we made a list. So here's all the things we can possibly throw at it. And we can't we can't let him go until we've tried all of them. But we kept finding more things to put on the list. Like there's, we never tried hitting him with a two-by-four. Not that I would do that. Not that I would advocate that. But that is a thing. And do we have to try everything? Like, there are things that I will not try. Yeah. And... At, at a certain point, we just realized he, he is who he is, and I don't think he was very happy. Like he, His aggression got way worse after dark. We had to put him in his crate when he got a little older, and if I rolled over on the couch and pulled up his blanket, he would snarl and thrash around in that crate, and I could go and look at him in the crate, and I don't think he recognized me. I think he was in another zone. He yeah. had no idea who I was. Yeah. And I know, he, I know he loved me. Most of the time, he was waggy, happy, great dog. With us, he was never great with strangers, but um, I I don't think he wanted to do that. I think there was something really broken in his brain and the fact that Prozac worked better than anything else we tried and actually brought the aggression down for a number of months really indicates to me that it was likely a chemical imbalance of some kind. Yeah. But the Prozac stopped working. It was never a hundred percent and you know, he he was suffering. Yeah. It's not fun to be to be biting the people you love. Right. No, it just sounds like in the same way that with there are certain humans that 
have some kind of chemical imbalance or some other kind of illness that's fundamental that sometimes can be addressed or helped with medication, sometimes less so, and that that's what happens with some of these animals. And as a measure, I guess, I mean, I am glad we're talking about it because it's not an overly pleasant topic, obviously, but I think it ha- it is one that hasn't been really addressed widely, at least on a show like this. And as a measure of how powerful the situation is, but also how common it is, or more common than many might think, can you talk a little bit more about losing Lulu? You made reference to it a moment ago as it's sort of a, a support group, but can you talk about just how quickly the group grew to a pretty sizable number and just other aspects of it? Yeah, so Lulu was a foster dog of mine, actually from Florida, who I picked out and brought back to foster and rehome. And while I had her, I discovered that she had some pretty significant dog aggression and after a fight where she tried to kill my ancient smaller dog for no reason, just (laughs) randomly jumped her and grabbed and shook. And luckily I had a trainer friend over and we were able to, with the help of a break stick, get her to release my smaller dog. And I think if we hadn't had that tool and known what to do with it, she might have killed the other dog. I was just so relieved that this did not happen in somebody else's home. Yeah. And the rescue group that I work with, Bully Project, does not adopt out dogs with damaging bite history. And once she bit my other dog that badly, she did $800 worth of damage in just a couple of minutes. We realized we can't send this dog out. So she was euthanized. And I got a lot of flack for for this from the internet. Uh, My dog Theodore has a page, Kibbling with Theodore, that has 21,000 fans. And most of them are understanding that we, we should not be sending out dogs who are going to hurt other people's dogs if someone ever drops a leash or leaves the gate open. There are some who think that every dog, there's there's a unicorn home out there where that will never happen. There's somebody who lives deep in the forest and there are no other dogs and you just need to hold on to her until that happens. Well, A, I can't hold on to her. I live in 160 square foot tiny house with my dogs and um, I can't have a dog aggressive foster in this home and I just don't think it's ethical to send out a dog that you know if anybody makes a mistake could kill somebody else's pet. Yeah. So while I was being internet bullied, my friend Sue Alexander said, you know, we should have a support group for this, for people who are going through this because I'm a trainer. I have a tough shell. People throw this stuff at me all the time. Delete block. Um, You just don't understand. You haven't lived through this. And I said, yeah, we need a support group. (laughs) And next thing you know, she sends me a little link that says losing Lulu. And uh, that was exactly two years ago. It was last uh, January of uh, 2019 that we, Lulu was euthanized on New Year's Eve of 2018. And in January 2019, we started losing Lulu. And I thought, you know, we'll get a couple hundred people. And it has exploded. And we now have 9,000 people who have nowhere else to go with this. They yeah. have families and friends who are blaming them often. Well, what did you do to that dog? Surely you were abusing him if he's, if he's aggressive. And as I've said, Chinook was not abused and he was terrifyingly aggressive. So um, the, the thing to remember, people are welcome to join trainers and vets are always welcome to join shelter people are always welcome to join you do have to answer the screening questions um coherently and answer why you want to be there and just saying i lost my dog will not get you in because your dog could have run away it has to be i i lost my dog for behavior or cat or horse or other species and 
it's not for people who still have dogs who are alive. We're not a training group. We're not an advice group. We're not going to give you the list of 1,000 things you could try with your with your um, animal who is behaviorally challenged that you're considering euthanasia for. You're welcome to join and read the stories, but we, we don't allow any discussion of living animals. It's just too hard on the people who have lost theirs. I'm sure. Yeah. No, it sounds like a very uh, singular group of people with very singular uh, animal experiences and uh and it sounds like yeah and we have an amazing moderation team i just want to give a shout out to the aurors because we have a culture of kindness we do not allow anybody to second guess we do not allow um trashing the trainer you are yeah trashing the rescue group or trashing the breeder we are just here to tell your story and to get support and yeah um, no. People who, who do anything but support are quickly deleted and blocked. I'm sure, because I would think that if you find a group like that and you've had that experience, that you, you're contending with so much grief and regret and uh, probably shame, and, and especially until you see that you know this this group you just found out about has nine thousand people uh you probably just think geez only only you know i'm i'm i only i'm probably the person that actually went ahead and had their dog euthanized when there, there didn't seem to be any further solution so it's probably hugely helpful for all these yeah, people it's been really healing for a lot of people yeah. and and it's a really different type of grief this is why we don't allow people in who have lost dogs to old age there's lots of places you can go for help with that sure but the the grief and relief that are mixed together where you suddenly can have friends over now you can go on vacation now you you feel relieved that you can have your life back and then you feel guilty that you feel relieved. Like the, the grief release cycle is something that we talk about a lot and it makes it a really um, complex type of grief because we, we are the ones who made that call for our animal who often is young and otherwise physically healthy. Yeah. Well, Trish, we're sort of nearing the end of our time, but I want to be sure to let people know who might have tuned in partway through our conversation that uh, my guest is Trish McMillan, an animal behavior expert who... Uh, has a lot of years and a lot of training and a lot of experience working with dogs, cats, and horses. And um, her website to find out more is Trish, T-R-I-S-H, McMillan, M-C-M-I-L-L-A-N dot com, Trish McMillan dot com. And, uh, and just really quickly, Trish, uh, for people who are uh, needing help of one kind or another, obviously they can go to, to your website. But um, just generally, are, are to what extent are degrees and certificates the criteria for determining who can help somebody with an animal issue? Um, or is that, you know, given maybe your own sort of background, is that kind of what you feel is, is really the, the thing people should look for? Well, I feel pretty strongly about putting my work up to peer review, which is why I have all of the letters after my name. I yeah. It shows that the trainer has an interest in continuing education. I think when you stop learning, it's, it's a real tragedy. There, there's always more to learn. I'm sure. something new about animal behavior every single day. So I do look for people who have pursued some type of certification in, um, in training or behavior. Yeah. Not that going to university necessarily makes you a better trainer, but it can make you a better critical thinker it can give you access to the literature to continue updating and um revising what you do for your animals right and plus i would think it would give you some grounding when there's more challenging complicated cases that come along um because we certainly talked yeah, about I mean, that, that's the thing 
thing about being a science-based trainer is you don't go around with these ideas that this is how I work with behavior and this is how I will always work with behavior. If um, you're able to read the literature and keep an open mind and see, oh, you know, when I worked in shelters, we used to poke dogs with a rubber hand to find out if they were food aggressive. And that was state of the art in 2001 or 2005. Yeah. But recent studies have come out that show that particular test has a really high false positive rate. About half of the dogs who growl or snap when you poke them with a rubber hand around a food bowl will not do that with their actual food bowl in their actual home. And mm. 20% in, in multiple studies, about 20% who don't growl and snap when you poke them with a rubber hand will growl and snap around food in a home, which tells me this is not a great assessment. And lots of dogs have lost their lives for this rubber hand. I, I teach a shelter dog behavior mentorship, and this is always a moment of clarity for some people when they actually read the studies. Yeah. So, you know, a science-based trainer will take new learning and completely change how they're doing things if there's evidence to indicate that's the, that's the best way to go. That's great. Yeah, well, again, science and math, even though you said you weren't much of a math person, look at you uh, quoting statistics and percentages right here. So uh, <laughs> anyways, Trish, thank you so much. We have reached into our time here. We've been speaking with Trish McMullen one more time to find out more or uh, see some of the kind of things that she does and seminars and all kinds of things, shelter-related, uh, individual, animal-related, et cetera. Trish McMillan, M-C-M-I-L-L-A-N.com. Thank you so much, Trish, for uh, making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Duncan. Great to be here. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Jennifer Kennedy about uh, anti-tethering laws to prevent uh, dogs from being chained or otherwise tied up outside, including pending legislation of that very kind in Florida, both the House bill and a Senate bill, fitting topics that seem to discuss on Inauguration Day. Do that in a few moments here on Talking Animals. On right now, that we're going to step into the comedy corner with a classic from a classic, by which I mean the great Stephen Wright and a portion of his quintessential piece, Dog Stay, in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Recently, I was walking my dog around my building on the ledge. <laughs> a lot of people are afraid of heights, not me, I'm afraid of widths. I have a three-year-old dog and named him Stay. <laughs> it was a lot of fun when he was a puppy because when I called him, I would say, come here, Stay, come here, Stay. <laughs> and he would go. <laughs> He's a lot smarter than that now. Now when I call him, he'll just ignore me and keep on typing. He's an East German Shepherd. <laughs> very, very disciplined. That was Stephen Wright in today's Comedy Corner with a portion of a piece called Dog Stay, taken from his album, I Have a Pony. Now it's time to speak with Jennifer Kennedy about anti-tethering laws, including bills pending right here in Florida. This is... Jennifer Kennedy on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Jennifer. Hi. Good morning, Duncan. Nice to make your acquaintance. Thanks for uh, having us here on Talking Animals. It's you, a real privilege. Oh, great. Well, thank you for joining us. Let's start right uh, off by defining our terms. When we say anti-tethering laws, what exactly do we mean? Well, in regards to um, tethering, what we're aiming to achieve with um, what currently um, our initiative is called Dylan's Dog Chaining Law, um, which um, is 
HB 177 and Senate Bill um, 650 uh, for Florida State is what we're aiming for is to um, hopefully eliminate and detour the long-term husbandry or keeping of dogs on chains and tethers. Um, it it uh, is very frequently, uh, it promotes long-term neglect and increases um, aggression um, three to five times um, more exponentially um, with various studies that have been done. So we we would like to um, improve the protection for uh, any neighborhood um, with these type of laws uh, for both um, citizens and our companion animals. And Jennifer, why are these laws sometimes challenging to pass? I mean, who resists such laws and typically why do they resist them? Well, um, quite often, well, and kind of an, uh, I would say to, for starters, it's um, unfortunately, uh, most animals um, are considered um, property. There are no there are no laws uh, stating that animals are living, breathing, sentient beings. So often, with most of the laws um, anywhere, they don't have that protection. Um, other than they are possessions to people, um, just as like often like an inanimate object. So. Often there's resistance because uh, sometimes, well, often individuals, uh, they don't like to be told what to do with their thing. Um, And they so often think it's an intrusion of um, personal property rights and things like that. So they will uh, often come out in opposition and say, don't tell me what to do with my my stuff. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, my stuff, meaning my dog, uh, uh, sadly, because of the property thing, which is really a tough deal because legally that is sort of a oddly tenable position but um so uh yes. florida now has anti-tethering bills pending as you've noted in the house and the senate uh, house bill hb yes. 177 uh senate bill sb 650 owing in part to the efforts of the league of humane voters uh in florida uh, and again executive director marilyn weaver is a periodic uh, guest over the years on, on talking animals so what can folks uh, listening to this show right now uh do to help advance these bills well what we've been doing uh, is encouraging um, all Florida residents um, in all counties is to please uh, reach out and connect with your state um, uh, your state legislators um, and please encourage them to um, either co-sponsor or to please um, support and uh, give a yes vote as the this bill makes its way through the legislative process. Um, shortly, we're going to be uh, reaching out and uh, connecting. We've already got, received some support from various um, uh, rescues in uh, different areas, but we're hoping to reach out to as many rescues across the uh, the state to please encourage letters of support. Um, I've, we've already uh, connected in certain uh, areas, uh, like Sumter County, of uh, talk to some uh, rescues there that are very supportive because um, uh, currently um, which is really wonderful there's 19 counties that um, currently have an attended tethering ordinance uh, which with much um, research and uh, study connecting with the animal control officers in a lot of these counties they they have um, demonstrated answering surveys that it is a, it's a wonderful tool very easily enforced which you know, saves taxpayer funding, um, which a lot of lawmakers um, like to know that. And um, they've just proven it's it's very effective in reducing um, a lot of the issues associated with 
with tethering. So we're really hoping that more rescues can reach out and anybody, all residents can uh, please call call your legislators, your state legislators, and please support this. Um, I, I, Florida is paving the way. They're, they're way ahead of the rest of the country. I, I um, Which is a nice uh, position to be. So a lot of times people think uh, we're, we're the other way around. So let me. we're almost out of our time, Jennifer, so let me okay. quickly ask you this. Is there a uh, website where either people could go for more information about anti-tethering and, and especially uh counties that have it, but also for any guidance on who to contact and if there's language for a certain email or letter that you might write that folks working on this campaign might suggest just to make it easier for people who say, well, I'd, I'd like to do it, but I'm not sure what to say. Yes. Well, um, definitely Marilyn uh, has encouraged to reach out and for people to join. It's free to join the, the League of Humane Voters. It's lohvfl.org. Okay. And uh, if they would like to uh, write letters, I'm sure they could could be sent in to uh, to Maryland, <clears throat> and we could add that to uh, what we send to to lawmakers. Okay. And uh, a shout out to Renee Rivard, who's their legislative um, advocate there, and she's she's been amazing. I've been so privileged to connect with her yeah. uh, as uh, as a. Um, anti-chain director of the anti-dog fighting campaign, but also anybody that would like to work on something locally, I am very happy to help them if they would like to go to also to Canine Unchained USA on Facebook. Okay. Uh, you can see the magnitude of, of the detriment of this, this uh, issue. And so we'd like to help tackle uh, this, this problem. But yes, please. Okay, Jennifer, we are out of time. I'm so sorry, but thank you so much for uh, joining us. I appreciate all the great information. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Duncan. Bye-bye. All right, we have just about reached the end of Talking Animals. We'll be back next Wednesday raising money alongside Laura Taylor for WMNF and its winter fun drive. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa.